I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. This time around, we are going back to the word. Uh, we're doing a sword drill, Matt. Uh, do you have your Bible handy? Are you ready to uh, use, put on the whole armor of God and defeat the forces <laughs> of the devil, having memorized a handful of Bible verses in Sunday school? Yeah, you better believe it. You know, I was actually in youth group. I was a part of our Bible quizzing team. So this is not unfamiliar territory to, for me. That does not surprise me. Okay, what is there a moment in your Bible quizzing career where you were like, whoa, I really pulled it out on this one. Is there one verse that really stuck out? You got it and everybody else. It was like, it was basically your equivalent of like shooting the two-pointer as the buzzer went off. That's a great question. So full disclosure, I was in Bible, I was in Bible quizzing for like a year and it was because this girl who I really had a big crush on was also in Bible <laughs> quizzing. So I joined and they were doing the book of Matthew and uh, what a great gospel <laughs> one to get in on. It was, it was fine. I remember. Um, so it, we had to practice every Wednesday before Wednesday night youth group. And that was cool. And I think I did, I, I got like some questions right. And that one, I went to one Bible quiz meet that year though. And I did answer one question. I, I can't tell you what it was for the life of me. Um, the girl, she did not, it didn't pan out as a relationship and uh, I ended up quitting afterwards. So, um, man, that's, if there was ever like a Christian version of Degrassi, that would be an arc of the entire season. That's right. Uh, I do appreciate though that that is sort of the foundational evangelical myth. Um, a girl was into something and therefore I became a Christian or read the Bible or whatever. I feel like that's a pretty common trope. I think so. I mean, what other reason are you going to do it? You know? <laughs> Uh, well, great. Um, we are building our big reservoirs of Bible knowledge now, though, by, as you might have heard, reading the whole Bible in a year. The Magnificast uh, Discord, a bunch of folks in there have committed to reading it uh, for a year. We just started it at the beginning of January, and we're already through the book of Genesis. So we thought it would be a good idea to occasionally kind of check in, see what's going on in this read through. So this is going to be one of the big Bible episodes that we do throughout the year. And uh, just because we're done with Genesis doesn't mean that you can't start. In fact, it's a great time to start. We're going to jump in with Exodus uh, this upcoming week. So if you're interested in joining, you can subscribe to our Patreon at two bucks or more, and we'll invite you to the Discord, and all the big conversations are happening there. There's a big reading plan. It's like 
I don't know, three chapters of the Bible every day or so. You can also just not pay us $2 and read it by yourself. But the community chatting about it is making a lot of fun. Uh, people are extremely smart in our Discord. And people are sharing yeah. all kinds of great, great resources, articles, hot takes, weird takes, uh, things you've never noticed, things I never noticed reading it. And I think that's actually been my favorite thing so far, just kind of signing in and being like, well, somebody had a, a big thought about some incredibly like weird detail that I completely glossed over. Totally. People are very smart in the Discord and not in a uh, not in an intimidating way either, <laughs> like in a very approachable, <laughs> kind and cool way, I think, is the vibe that everyone's bringing to it, which I appreciate. Um, yeah, my approach so far has been to read the footnotes in my big Oxford annotated Bible and then also just kind of do associations of themes in my head and then just sort of ramble in the discord about them. And so far it's worked out pretty well. Um, it's cool, man. Genesis. I mean, Genesis is like the perfect book to do that with too, because it's like the foundational sort of creation myth and there's so much weird stuff to riff on, but uh, it's been so fun. It's been really fun to kind of get in on it all. And I am deeply surprised how many people are interested in reading the Bible <laughs> at all, <laughs> let alone joining our community, our Patreon community to do it. So that's very cool. Um, so anyways, maybe that could be you. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, that means uh, we might as well get our hot takes on the table here and then we can continue to talk about them with all the other Patreon folks. And uh, as Matt said, neither of us are Bible scholars. I did do a Bible minor at an evangelical college um, like over a decade ago now. So I have <laughs> some pretty dusty and incredibly weird yeah. knowledge about Bible scholarship. Uh, and Matt and I have read a lot of weird philosophers who are also interested in the Bible. But apart from that, it's just going to be a lot of vibes, a lot of weird associations along the way, I think. And uh, if you're a Bible scholar's person, Bible studies person, whatever it is, uh, you can tell us all the things we got wrong or uh, tell us all the things that we could keep getting right by reading somebody smarter than us. Um, so, Matt, uh, let, let's get into Genesis here. Let's maybe like yeah. a good a good on ramp. Yeah, OK, let me just tell you about what Genesis is in case you have never heard of this thing before. <laughs> so Genesis, as you you probably know this much, at least it's the first book of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament. Genesis was written around the 6th or 5th century BCE, and it offers a big, interesting starting point for all of creation. You might have heard of that as well. <laughs> so Genesis itself, I think, has like at least two big thematic pieces to the book. Maybe you could pull out a few more if you are smarter than me, but these are the two that seemed immediately obvious. So the opening chapters are a pretty loosely connected uh, set of stories that give a really mythic founding to the world and like the fundamental tensions in the world between God, people, and creation itself. Um, you know, you got uh, the Garden of Eden, you got um, the Nephilim, you got Cain and Abel, all these kinds of like good foundational myths about society, and I think that stick with us in all kinds of weird ways. That's great. And then the section that follows that focuses on like the particular relationship that God has between um, God's self and the chosen people, uh, which at the end, the very end of the book, are called Israel. So not until the very end are they called that. Um, but it's cool. It's, you know, um, I remember reading this a lot. Not a lot. I remember reading Genesis um, an amount when I was an evangelical because, like, um, when you're an evangelical, I think a quintessential experience is the anxiety of knowing that you need to read the Bible but <laughs> lacking the attention span and sort of, like, intellectual capacity for doing it. So you end up restarting Genesis over and over and over again. 
so I've like read Genesis a handful of times, probably in my life. Um, <laughs> but uh, this time is I think a bit different because I have more people to bounce ideas off of and <laughs> maybe some more intellectual handles than I did when I was like 19 or something. <laughs> but uh, man, it's a wild book with lots of like ups and downs. I, I got to tell you, just as a as a piece of literature, I didn't really find the uh, the opening creation scenes all that interesting, but I was very into the um, minutia of like Joseph and his relationship and like what he was doing in Egypt and stuff. That part was really fun for me. I don't know. What what was your big take on the book, Dean? If you had to like give it a, like uh, a five out of five star rating, um, what would you maybe say? Great question. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of other ancient documents um, or ancient kind of stories, you know, the Odyssey, all these kinds of things, uh, a lot of Homer in my life. And uh, I'd say comparatively, it's pretty up there. It's not as uh, the narrative doesn't move as at the the kind of click of, you know, something like the Odyssey, but it's got its moments. Um, I was just today reading, there's a, a kind of Marxist sociologist of the Bible and Bible scholar named Norman Gottwald. And uh, he draws on a lot of literary scholarship as well. And he describes the Joseph part as a novella, which I thought was really fun to kind of think of it that yeah, way. Um, so, yeah, maybe on a, a five scale, I would give it, um, let's say, I would give it a four out of five for sure. Um, okay. I think it's up there. It has some good narrative. Uh, and I think it's also reading it this time around has been really interesting for me because the last time I read the Bible all the way through, I was an evangelical and trying really hard to sort of make it all make sense and kind of deal with the burden of like reconciling things that are very hard to reconcile or pretending that contradictions don't exist. And yeah. really kind of like seeing the text impinge on me in a way that felt really dominating. And uh, now it's way more fun. I feel like it's fun to be able to play with the text and be like, this is completely bizarre. And <laughs> I'll read like, three or four different takes on it and be like, yeah, it's still weird, but here are the fun, weird things about it. So I've liked that a lot. And uh, the last thing that I've enjoyed is uh, reading Gottwald and some other folks trying to think about how Genesis came into being. There's kind of a, there are lots of theories about how the book is structured. It has multiple authors, um, all this kind of stuff. But there's one really kind of fascinating thesis that it's a, uh, a kind of founding myth um, that is specifically designed by people, uh, tribal people in, in Canaan, who are sort of telling a story of themselves as like revolutionaries or rebels kind of rebelling against the power structure of their day. And so the book of Genesis is like one way that they're doing that by sort of creating a certain creation myth that's similar to but different from their neighbors uh, deciding on particular patriarchs that uh, suggest some things about them, uh, lots of different kind of moving parts. So now it's been really fun to read without the the like burden of having to make it make sense and just being like, this is a wild book and I'm just going to like get wild with it. And uh, I've appreciated that this time around. That is such a good thing to say because, okay, again, the last time, <laughs> the last time I was like really, I think, trying to read Genesis. I mean, okay, don't don't get me wrong. I've read Genesis a handful of times, probably since I was an evangelical, like, I don't know, in church or in different contexts, <laughs> you know, you pick it up, you put it down, whatever. That's true. But the last time I made a, like a really concerted effort to like read it front to back in like a systematic way was definitely when I was an evangelical. 
And, uh, and now uh, coming to the text without the anxiety of like having to get it just right or make all these interesting connections is really, I think, liberating in and of itself. Like to come to the, to come to this extremely old book and just be like, uh, some of this just isn't going to make sense to me. And I think that's fine. And I'm not going to try to like force it or like do a deep dive on, <laughs> I don't know, um, exactly what it means that Methuselah, Methuselah was like 969 years old. Nice. Um, is really good. Whereas when I was an evangelical, I was also like um, in a in a group reading uh, Lee Strobel's Case for the Creator. So it was like, you know, it's a whole different energy to bring to this um, this whole situation. And I think that uh, the group of people I'm reading with, uh, the group of people that I'm reading with now is a lot better than the group of people I was reading with when <laughs> I was a teen. So a lot more of a positive experience, I would say. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting what comes through in the text when you aren't burdened by the demand to make it all make sense or fit it through a particular framework. Um, you know, like, I think when you're a Christian, there's also a uh, a reflex to read characters in the Bible in an almost flawless way, or even to, like, see the character of God in the Bible in some particular ways. And kind of allowing yourself to be like, do I or don't I actually agree with maybe the implicit moral in this story? Or like, I don't yeah. know, is this is the Bible even saying that what this character is doing is good? Or is it just kind of reporting on something uh, in the narrative to kind of, I don't know, let you decide what to do with it? I think that has been a great shift. Um, something we've been talking about in the Discord, too, is what does it mean to read the Bible as a confessional Christian and if you are just kind of picking and choosing this or that part to say, okay, that's the direction that maybe I want to pick up and extend. Are you being unfaithful to the text? And uh, one thing that I think has been a really fun discourse in that, uh, in the discord, the discord discourse um, has been uh, thinking through how actually affirming that it's very complicated and that the Bible is put together in all these weird ways lets you be faithful to the text by saying, and that means I get to also sort of enter into that complication and figure out what to do with it and get wild with it as well, be playful with it, because that's what the people were doing as they put this weird book together in the first place, uh, a big compilation of, you know, mythic stories, narratives, uh, vaguely historical references, strange kind of <laughs> geographical markers, all this stuff is just like in the big soup that is the book of Genesis. And uh, you can like some parts of that soup and you can pick out the parts you don't like. And I think that's, that's part of it. It's a gumbo. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so much stuff going on there. Yeah. But that is, it is like really freeing not having to like, I don't know, bring your, <laughs> to bring the like reality of your entire faith and personhood onto like how good you can read something or like how well, you know, something. So anyways, that's really nice. Um, well, let's get we'll get to some of these like big themes that we maybe we want to talk about in Genesis in just a minute. Uh, Dean, what's your favorite part from the creation part of Genesis? <laughs> uh, great question. Uh, you know, one thing that kind of stuck out to me this time, I think reading it as a person who has studied philosophy and specifically read a lot of like weird philosophers of language. Um, the thing that stuck out to me was all the kind of distinction making that happens in Genesis, uh. like what you kind of get in uh, both the both Genesis one and two, the two creation stories, um, you get the sense that God is kind of parsing a lot of stuff out. And there's a lot of like separating things, making distinctions, naming particular things. And then God invites uh, Adam into that process to kind of parse out the, the mass of animals by naming them or identifying them. And there's something really interesting about that, that maybe you never 
struck me in the same way in the past. Uh, there's this real kind of emphasis on language uh, right away in Genesis that I think is is interesting too in a creation story, right? To kind of tie language to creation in such a direct way. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Matt? What's the big piece sticking out for you in the creation pit, uh, narrative? Yeah, that's such a profound thought, Dean. I think I really appreciate that. Uh, for me, it's these big giants that are everywhere in the book. <laughs> I think that that's the most fun part of the creation narrative. Um, so, okay, in the book of Genesis, you get these these creatures called Nephilim uh, that are the uh, the offspring of angels and humans, and they're really big. I've been led to believe the biggest boys. Okay, this is, they're the biggest boys. <laughs> yeah, of course. They're down on Earth. They're eating up everyone's gumbo, and it's a big problem. You know, this is okay. This is why I find it to be interesting, I think, is because the Nephilim have some kind of like weird, strong hold over people's brains, insofar as I like, I'm still see like my my TikTok page is still like full of like people being like, Did you know that on this mountain there's a big there's a big giant there's a nephilim and it like lives here and like there's all kinds of like conspiracy theories that persist to this day about the nephilim i think that's like really fascinating that people's brains are so um warped i think by by these characters in genesis that have like such a minor role it is so fascinating to me uh, yeah these uh these ideas are bouncing around in all these different ways and i guess it is an observation about language and at the end of the day that it's just like um the nephilim they make this appearance in the bible they're this like weird sort of like hybrid creature. And isn't that interesting? Um, but people are still like really fascinated by the appearance of those creatures. And like, they will still like, I don't know, thousands of years later, still have something to say about it or like still want them to, to exist or to be like <laughs> hiding in a mountain somewhere. And uh, I think that rules. That's so fun. Um, <laughs> people, people are weird and I appreciate that. Yeah, just the other day I was uh, getting, I think my algorithm is learning that I'm also reading the Bible because uh, there was some uh, weird trend on Twitter uh, of just the the term Nephilim was trending. And it was some conspiracy theory related to like a bunch of kids were like fighting each other in a shopping mall or something. And all these like conservative right wingers, like big accounts of, you know, thousands of followers, they were retweeting it. All being like, oh, these people, they're Nephilim. Or somebody saw a Nephilim at this mall and like the monsters are here. I don't really know. This is, I got the impression that there's kind of a whole conspiratorial universe behind it that I haven't quite like figured out. But uh, yeah, it's it's alive and well. And also uh, one fascinating thing about it is that the way these people were talking about it was very clearly racist. And kind of yeah. the way that the Nephilim maybe represent like the fall of the created order and race is also a way by which uh, Christian discourse really damns people outside of the the order of, you know, civilization and salvation and all that kind of stuff and how that's tied up to anti-black racism. Uh, it was really interesting to just kind of see that maybe in mm-hmm. in in a live situation. Totally. That trend on uh, Twitter, TikTok, et cetera, that was at a mall in Florida where people were. Uh, concerned that it was either kids fighting one another, it was Nephilim, or it was aliens. So one of the three, <laughs> we'll never be sure exactly which it was. They're all Though equally the, plausible. Um, <laughs> who, who's to say, really? Um, though the uh, the recognition of the racialized discourse around it, I think, is actually really good because uh, it is it is for sure racialized um, in some interesting ways. Uh, one time I read this book, I wish I could remember the author or the title of the book. Sorry, this is, this is a bad, a bad anecdote. 
Uh, one time I read a book, it was about the figure of the troll sort of in like mm. um, Scandinavian countries. And it actually has that particular connotation that huh. comes along with it. Like the, a troll is like, you know, in our imagination is like a big giant with a big nose and he has a hammer and he swings it around. And isn't that cool? But like in the uh, sort of medieval understanding, it's like the other it's a you know, it's a black person. It's like mm. uh, someone who's not from Scandinavia. So it's just like interesting the way these like uh, big myths play out and mm-hmm. persist over time. So aliens uh or nephilim either way you know <laughs> that is a kind of weird thing that goes with it that's the one thing we should start now i think we're too late but we should start it now cryptid watch throughout the bible alien watch throughout the bible um i know by the time we get to ezekiel we're gonna learn all about these ufos so flagging it now we should have been paying attention to genesis but we need to uh that's make true. sure we start getting these guys on the board that's right we've got bigfoot with kane we've got right. the nephilim um Oh man, there's there's a dragon in the Bible. There are all kinds of other beasts. Oh, we're gonna be we're we're gonna have our hands full here with the scripted watch. That's right. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, lots of other things we could say about the creation story and uh, many other parts of this too. You could, I mean, you could do a whole episode about, for example, just the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, lots of themes in the creation narratives have uh, become important in postmodern philosophy, for example, and theology. Um, like Catherine Keller and John Caputo and all these other people have written at length about the even the role of language in the creation story. Um, and uh, liberation theologians, too, are really invested in the language around the image and likeness stuff, that God created humanity in the image and likeness of, of God. Uh, there's also just a ton of weird history around that, even in like the Renaissance and kind of Christian humanism and stuff like that. I feel like we could really get fixated on it, but there are so many other pieces in here and we're not going to get to all of them in, uh, in an hour. So Matt, I'm going to ask you, uh, besides the creation story, what's, uh, <laughs> what's the next big hit in Genesis where you're like, okay, having read it through, um, in 2024, this is a uh, one anecdote that sticks out. Yeah, well, I think that there's a theme that is really interesting within Genesis that is worth talking about, especially when it comes to like liberation theology and then maybe whatever the opposite of liberation theology is. <laughs> bad, bad theology. I don't know. But like an enduring idea in Genesis. And it's like, I mean, it's a theme. It's like everywhere in the book, every character, God is making some kind of promise to this person, right? They're, God's making a promise. God's making a covenant. With the patriarchs, with Noah, um, in the creation story, you know, you get like the promise that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, is complicated because that is true, but in a weird way. Um, and also you get in the story of Noah that God, you know, won't kill every single person, person on earth again um, <laughs> in a flood. <laughs> Um, a great promise. And then later on, you get other kinds of promises that get more specific, right? Like in early in the book, it's like the, the promises between God and people are like really universal types of promises. And then they get kind of narrower as they go. So um, like when it comes to uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three faves, uh, (laughs) God promises like descendants. He promises favor. God promises like different types of blessings um, and also land, which is an important piece of the puzzle. I think Uh, a, troubling one as well actually um but there's a lot going on with these promises there's a lot to say about them um and there's all kinds of like cultural context too that i think we just kind of like miss out on like their importance as well but whatever 
the thing that I thought was really interesting about the promises and the covenants is that they like found for better or worse, a lot of like the liberative qualities within Judaism and within Christianity, like um, even something like descendants, like when God promises Abraham, you know, all kinds of descendants, uh, that's a big deal for Abraham. And the descendants are important, right? Cause it's like, that's your inheritance. That's the people who inherit whatever you have to give them. They're like the people that come after you and keep your memory alive, all this kind of great stuff. Um, but also like it is just a, in general as like a promise, as a covenant, it's like a promissory note that like you have a future, that there's something that comes after, you know, there's more than, you know, whatever the trouble that you're dealing with is now. And that's like pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you can't really have liberation theology without that fundamental move of promise of covenant of like things that you're experiencing now might be bad or hard or difficult, but in the future, God's going to make it right. Right. Like that's like, that's the fundamental like movement I think of liberation theology. And I think there's probably something to say it's, you know, it's in different types of theology as well. Um, so there's that. Um, I was also thinking of this, uh, maybe the flip of that this week, <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's like interesting to think about those promises and covenants within the ongoing genocide in Palestine. Um, what does it mean for, uh, God to promise something like descendants or favor or land or something, um, in that context, right? Uh, and, and maybe not even just like in terms of like the current state of Israel, but also within like Christian Zionism and other types of Christofascism, there, um, remains a, like a, uh, you know, there's a sort of like drawing from that idea within those more like uh right-wing and fascist ways of thinking that I think is particularly bad. So I, I, I mean, I was really struck by it even this past week, I was watching the ICJ um, uh, hearing of mm-hmm. South Africa. Um, man, I can't remember what day that was now. <laughs> the week <laughs> has been a long one, um, but they were uh, the, um, the lawyer from South Africa was playing a clip um, of somebody from the state of Israel and they were using like, you know, specific language from Genesis that I, like, I just read to reference like the like offspring of Esau or something as like an ideological bludgeon against Palestinians to like, uh, you know, um, <laughs> to try to like uh, weaponize the Bible against them, which is gross. Um, so anyways, I, I guess what's interesting about that idea of promise and also like the trouble that you kind of get into with promise is that like you have the root of liberation in Genesis with some of these things, but you also have like the flip side, like the over possessive and like maybe even like, I mean, xenophobic and fascist types of energies in it too. And I think that's, um, I mean, kind of what we always find in the Bible, right? (laughs) There's like, (laughs) there's a way of like hooking yourself up to it all uh, where it's good and you can use it towards like a, a liberative end. And there's a way to like, over imbibe or like orient yourself to it wrongly where it ends up like, you know, creating all kinds of bad things in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Bible is also a site of struggle and the interpretations that we have uh, about it come out of our own kind of struggles. And I I was thinking about those themes as well, reading it. Uh, One of the things that really fascinated me reading Genesis in in this current moment with uh, Israel's politics, which are often buoyed by biblical references is that, uh, there, God does make this promise about land. Um, but all the way throughout Genesis, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all sort of have these interesting experiences with their neighbors in the region. 
uh, like Abraham doesn't come from the land where God promises to to give him land and he gets helped out by his neighbors um, here and there. I mean, he has friction with some of them as well, but the Bible goes out of its way to say like when Abraham gets there, there's a bunch of other people already living there. And that is very yeah. interesting. And, and his, and Abraham's response is not to like subjugate them, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I think is pretty interesting. Um, you get the same again with uh, Isaac and Jacob. There's all kinds of, pretty intriguing relationships even to land outside of Canaan and kind of the, the familial ties that Abraham has left behind, but is still kind of related to. So I think one of the most fascinating things about the Bible is that people use it to license all kinds of, all kinds of things, but it is yeah. actually a pretty profoundly human book. Like there's a lot of just yeah. sort of regular life going on in there too. And, uh, yeah, people kind of lose the the interesting domestic parts of it. You know, but I guess domestic, what I mean is like the the normal stuff. Like if you're just a person living in a foreign land, you're going to have to make friends or you're going to have a really bad time. And that's just what you see the patriarchs doing, too. So there's a kind of like alternative theology of land and neighborhood and all that kind of stuff that's also being um, developed throughout the Bible that people seem to conveniently forget when their only relationship to land is one of, you know, paranoia or self-defense or militarization. Right. Just a quick observation I had, or maybe not an observation, an experience I had. So on that day, I was watching the ICJ stuff. It was a few days after we had read um, the bit in Genesis about Jacob and Esau. So if you aren't familiar or it's been a minute since you read it, you got Abraham and uh, then there's Isaac. Right. And then Jacob. And then Mm -hmm. Jacob has a brother called Esau. (laughs) And they're both like, uh, uh, let's see, Jacob is the really likes Esau. Esau is like the big, he's like a real man's man. He's a real hairy guy. <laughs> he's like a hunter, all this kind of stuff. The bear and girls Jacob of the Bible. Is, <laughs> the bear girls of the Bible. Exactly that. Yep. Um, if there ever was a professional wrestler, it would have been him. Um, I guess <laughs> <laughs> though, never mind. <laughs> actually complicated, uh, given the life story of Jacob actually later. But anyways, um, uh, Jacob is not, he's a real wimpy guy. He is, you know, not as muscular or hairy as his brother. And, uh, Isaac, his dad really likes Esau and is going to give Esau his blessing. Right. And, uh, Jacob, uh, prompted by his mom kind of goes through this like sort of tricky task of, uh, tricking his dad. who can't see very well into giving, um, to giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. Um, Anyways, the uh, then after that story, you learn that like uh, the descendants of of Esau are called you know the descendants of Amalek or the Amalekites, which is interesting because during the ICJ hearings, that was a phrase that Israel uses to like reference Palestinians as people who are less than human because they're like uh, they're not they're not Israelites, right? There's something there's somebody different. But what's interesting is that later in that story, uh, Jacob spends his like basically his entire life like wandering around and like getting the bad end of a lot of deals to mm-hmm. put it simply but there's this part later in genesis where jacob and esau re-encounter one another and jacob is so worried that esau is going to be like pissed at him for what mm-hmm. he did and it's not the case esau's like really happy to see him and just kind of like forgives it and they like they embrace they hug and i don't know it was such a jarring thing to be like mm-hmm. well um this is one way the bible is used to um, you know, dehumanize Palestinians. But if you actually, you know, read this part of the Bible, you see this sort of a different story. I don't know, really fascinating and extremely weird experience um, that only could have happened in this particular time in the world, <laughs> yeah. but uh, interesting nonetheless. 
Yeah, I mean, the way that geopolitics sometimes flow out of these incredibly ancient texts or kind of get metaphorized in them is really bizarre because, uh, like I said, the Bible is such a weird book and it takes all these twists and turns. And uh, that's one thing that makes it narratively interesting to read, right? Like, uh, as a reader, you also expect that Esau is going to kill Jacob when he sees him because everything the Bible is telling you so far is kind of preparing you for that moment. Yeah, (laughs) it's like a pretty moving part as a reader to be like, oh, man, Esau just wanted to have a good a good relationship with with Jacob in the end. Um, But you get the same thing with uh, the lineage of Ishmael and Isaac, right? Like the Ishmaelites are just kind of wandering around also (laughs) as the uh, the descendants of Isaac are are wandering around. In fact, at one point, um, the uh, sons of uh, of Jacob they're going to sell off Joseph into slavery and they almost sell him to, uh, to the Ishmaelites. They're essentially their cousins, I guess. Um, so, uh, I don't know. It's just like fascinating because there are these geo geopolitical tropes that will sort of talk. I've heard Christians even use this language of like Muslims, you know, they're the, the legacy of Ishmael or they're the Ishmaelites, um, which is an incredibly bizarre thing to say already, right? That's not how, like, <laughs> the world works. But uh, the irony is, like, even if you kind of pull up these metaphorizations of history, it's actually way more complicated. It would it would imply, you know, different kinds of relationships than the kind of relationships of total hate that at least you get in Genesis. You do get that in other parts of the Bible. Um, and ironically, mm-hmm. people don't use those as much, I guess. I don't know. But uh Anyway, yeah, I, I had the same feeling reading those kinds of names come up and being like, whoa, checking this against current events, it's just like way more complicated what's going on in the Bible than what Netanyahu is saying or whatever. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. It is interesting to kind of be abreast of those references, though, and kind yeah. of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you're one day you're reading the Bible and the next day you hear it in the, uh, in the Hague or whatever is like <laughs> right. a very bizarre experience. That's right. Uh, well, um, lots of other themes going on in here. Um, but one I wanted to pull out that I think is really fascinating is a theme of uh, anti-urbanism that happens in Genesis. Um, I had kind of forgotten about this, but all of a sudden my Christian anarchist uh, history came flooding back really quickly and uh, the the book of Genesis is such an interesting text because it's doing so many different things. But it does kind of have this like ongoing suspicion towards cities and urban life in general. And uh, I thought we should talk about it, especially, Matt, since we both do have a weird Christian anarchist uh, past. Um, yeah, of course. So uh, already right away in the Bible, I'll, I'll name some greatest hits and then maybe we can pull them apart a little bit more. Um, here's at least the parts that I kind of marked, uh, right away when Cain, after Cain murders Abel, uh, Genesis also goes, it kind of makes a point to say that he goes on to be the founder of the first city in the world. So he's an urbanite and there's a lot of Christian anarchist literature that will point out that there's this kind of maybe vague or subtle, um, suggestion in the Bible that murder and cities sort of go together in this weird way. Uh, and Christian anarchists like to make a lot of that connection. Um, it's not necessarily explicit in the text, but I will say it is pretty implicit um, at that stage, and it does get kind of confirmed later on. Um, I think that there's parts of the flood narrative that also suggest a kind of anti-urbanist piece. Um, it's like a decreation moment, and uh, after everything kind of settles, you get the sense, too, that the, the trend towards cities is going to be a, another kind of fall. 
So right after the flood, you get the Tower of Babel moment. Everybody's getting together. They're building a big tower, and God scatters them. Uh, So these are all the kind of anti-urban trends that you get in the mythical stories, where there's just these big events going on, and there's a sense that maybe settling and and building cities is is not ideal. Uh, And then when you get to the patriarchs, this theme comes up again, too. Uh, When Abraham and Lot uh, have to split at a certain point, um, Lot, Abraham basically says, like, Lot, you can go wherever you want. Uh, there's not enough room in this spot for both of us. So wherever you go, you go that way. I'll go the other way and we'll like still be buds, but you do your thing. And Lot decides to go to the cities. He ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham continues a more nomadic life. And the Bible even goes out of its way to say that Abraham is living in a tent. God meets him in a tent and Lot is living uh, in a house in the city, uh, which I think is like a pretty interesting thing to sort of mention. Even the dwelling is like suggestive. Uh, When Joseph gets uh, sold into um, slavery, uh, to make a long story short, he ends up in Egypt. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But that ends up kind of sucking him into a political machine. And through that mechanism, uh, all of the rest of his family gets sucked into that political machine as well. So all that to say, I think there's probably other examples too, but it was a really interesting exercise this time to be marking those moments where the Bible does seem to sort of be praising like a more mobile nomadic existence and like constantly kind of bumping up against uh, the the drive to settle in the ancient world. That's true. If you read the Bible, if you read Genesis, you, you come away wanting to drive around in a school bus that runs on <laughs> French fry oil, not settling down for any one place uh, for too long. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's something really fascinating about it. Like, Matt and I both read a lot of this weird French philosopher, Paul Virilio, and done a few episodes on him in the past. I I can't say I recommend people read him, but he is a really fascinating (laughs) guy. Um, He is also extremely nervous about cities, and uh, he lived in Paris, but nevertheless, um, kind of tied cities to the logic of war and violence in some really Mm -hmm. interesting ways. And uh, it never really occurred to me that I feel like his kind of philosophical conclusion is also a pretty like biblical trend. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it might not be, I feel like the, the anti-city thing is something I don't feel very strongly about, but it is a really interesting uh, theme in Genesis, but also in philosophy <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> of anarchist philosophy and Paul Virilio, who is, you know, an anarchist kind of guy. Um, yeah. Paul Virilio says that, uh, that, you know, cities are a part of the war machine in the sense that, like, you know, you can't have, like, the production of military arms without having a concentrated, like, workforce in a city. And also, you can't have any of that without, like, something that can pass sort of traffic through it in terms of, like, shipping and receiving and production. And uh, I don't know. It didn't really strike me as that big of a connection until you made the connection to Cain as being, like, uh, you know, uh, a city as, as a place of murder, though. I guess that is kind of a good connection. There, there must be something to this um, that now I'm just kind of uh, it's kind of dawning on me. <laughs> yeah, there is something to it, I think. And I mean, we'll discover this later in the Bible, too. But there is a deep suspicion towards centralized power, I think, in all the Bible, both the the Hebrew scriptures and the, the Christian New Testament. Um, I think at every turn, there is a kind of like anti-authoritarian strand, which is not to say anti-communal or anti-organization, but... I will say I'm not an anarchist by politics, but I do think that the Bible trends in a pretty kind of 
certain kind of anarchist direction that I think is really instructive and also has some cool insights um, for a spiritual relationship to politics that is not like, I don't know, not spiritualizing you out of the world, but kind of sensitizing you to different trends that do come up when uh, when we kind of have maybe like more concentrated systems of power or the systems kind of take over our other ways of relating to each other and to the world. And there's that kind of emphasis on nomadism that what you get in Virilio too is sort of a an emphasis on being open to kind of having a, a relationship to the world that's like, you know, open to change, open to others, uh, less of a, ne- a necessity to sort of lock down and build defenses and fortify them, but sort of always being, uh, you know, ready for something new to appear in the world. And there is something really kind of neat about that in Genesis. Yeah, totally. Well, I think a lot of that, uh, that like anti-authoritarian vibe will definitely come out as we get through the Old Testament, especially into the prophets. There's all kinds of stuff in there about, you know, not wanting kings and man, it's great. You're right. That is a great, that's a, such a good theme. Um, I don't, I'm also not an anarchist as you might know, um, but there is something like kind of nice about the, um, maybe a bad choice of words, but it's, there's something nice about the ammunition that kind of gives you to be <laughs> suspicious of, uh, to be suspicious of rulers and to be suspicious of hierarchy. I think that's maybe a good, uh, a good thing to be suspicious of, especially if you aren't an anarchist, maybe um, someone yeah. who, who yeah. believes in the centralization of power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I always say uh, anarchists are a good conscience for the left, which is to say your conscience isn't the only thing that you have going on <laughs> in your, in your world or in your life, but it is uh, an important thing that you ought to pay maybe more attention to than you'd like to here and there. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's good. Um, a real good interleft um, ethic, I think. <laughs> um, speaking of centralization, let's talk about some more of that, actually, because there's a very interesting and kind of drawn out bit at the end of Genesis that does have some things to say about centralization. Again, not explicitly, but maybe more implicitly. Pretty hard implicitly, I think, now that I'm thinking about it more. Um, so the conclusion of Genesis is a pretty drawn out story. I think Dean, you said earlier that it was like a novella and I think that's right. It does. It definitely is like the, you know, you get Abraham, you get Isaac, you get Jacob. And then these guys are all great. But then like the real action comes with Jacob's son, Joseph, who you might remember the, he has a technicolor dream coat. It's a great coat. The Bible does not say it's technicolor. It just is a coat with long sleeves, but <laughs> boring um, in my boring. I feel like, the rebrand to Technicolor Dreamcoat is way better. Um, the Bible <laughs> should say that, and I think that there should be a footnote about that. It doesn't. You don't have Joseph to change in the, the text. I'm not. Joseph in the big jetpack. That's going to be in the, the details version. <laughs> I think that'd be good. I just I just want a footnote in here that just says some people think his coat was really great. You know, um, I actually do have that footnote. Really quick, I'm gonna. So, oh, I'm, do you really? Yeah, we're uh, we have different translations and editions of the bible everybody's reading different ones let me look it up here um mine is the nrsv um let's see okay what's the what's this verse matt i'm in the neighborhood but let me find it give me a sec you can hear in real time i'm flipping my actual physical bible uh what if i get there before you (laughs) okay i've got it it is genesis 37 3 which in the regular text says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a long robe with sleeves. And then there's a great footnote that says, uh, traditional rendering, compare with the Greek, a coat of many colors. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. 
So they do at least kind of uh, give you a bit of a, a nod to um, the fact that you might actually know the story from a musical. But uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's in there. Thank God. It is in the Bible. Even in a footnote, that's enough for me. Okay. <laughs> so you might know the story from the musical. Uh, Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, an important connection. They don't like Joseph very much. He's a real head in the clouds kind of guy. And they are going to kill him because they don't like him, I guess. <laughs> a wild thing to do. Uh, but instead of killing him, they're like, well, what if we could sell him and then take the money? And wouldn't that be better? And uh, and that was actually like, that's like an act of mercy by one of his brothers to say, don't kill him, but to sell him mm-hmm. in slavery instead, which is, again, an absolutely bonkers thing. <laughs> so they throw him into a pit and they try to find someone to buy him. And eventually they do. He gets sold off to, um, you know, this this guy in Egypt, Potiphar. It's a whole thing. We don't need to talk about it now. But uh, through, because God likes Joseph, uh, Joseph sort of rises in power in Egypt. And after he's, you know, discarded by his brothers, he like rises the ranks and uh, he ends up in jail because of Potiphar's wife, which is another whole thing. You can go back and read the Bible if you want to. Um, But when he's in jail, he's like there for a while until he finally gets his way out when he, um, when he is called upon by Pharaoh to decode some of Pharaoh's weird dreams. <laughs> I don't know. The whole story is bonkers, man. But I love it. It's great. <laughs> so um, Joseph, he decodes the dream. He tells Pharaoh what's going to, what it means. And basically what it means is that there's going to be a big drought uh, after seven years. There'll be like a seven year long drought. So anyways, Joseph, um, this like catapults Joseph as like the governor of all of Egypt. <laughs> It's just so funny to be well, like, he has a great plan. Me. Yeah, he does. He has a great plan. The plan is that he's going to basically like do war communism in Egypt and store up a <laughs> bunch of grain. <laughs> no, not really. He, but he does store up a bunch of grain so that he can like get them through the drought. Um, and that's what he does. It's great. And it's it's working. So during the drought, though, Joseph reconnects with his family, uh, his brothers who did throw him into a pit and sell him to slavery. And there's this like long drawn out explanation of like the ways that Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they're still mad at him. (laughs) And he determines that they're like not really mad at him anymore or that it's probably safe to kind of like let them know who he is. And he does. The drought ends up being so severe that like Joseph ends up like buying basically like all of the land of Egypt, all the land of Canaan and like buying everything because people have like, you know, nothing um, in terms of food. And he like Egypt basically comes to like, I don't know, enclose upon all of these different lands (laughs) that like, you know, they didn't before. And it's interesting because Joseph goes from like, I don't know, this guy, this guy, this like, I don't know, younger brother in, in Canaan of like, uh, you know, this big family to like the, the encloser upon her of <laughs> Egypt and like, you know, his family moves from Canaan to Egypt to kind of like settle there because of this connection. And um, it's like this really interesting story about how Egypt becomes this like centralized power in the region through, I mean, it it is, it is because God like, you know, gives Joseph the ability to like interpret dreams and this kind of stuff. Um, but it's also this like kind of, I don't know, weird cautionary tale too about bureaucracy and centralization of powers and um, maybe some more of that like anti-civ stuff going on as well. But it is a, a weird 
an interesting thing to happen at the end of the story. I mean, it's like God makes all these promises throughout, you know, like to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that like you're going to have descendants, you're going to have this land. And then like what ends up happening is that like the entire family moves to Egypt and like that's where they are. (laughs) It seems like such a weird (laughs) counterintuitive thing. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating because like Jacob, he's basically betting on like grain futures, right? <laughs> he's like, we can uh, it's true. Uh, so- store all the stuff up. And then initially, all the people from around Egypt come to Egypt to to get it, which is like a booming period for Egypt, right? They're making all this money because Joseph had this foresight via Pharaoh's dream. And then eventually, uh, the Egyptians too start to feel the drought. And so they come to Joseph and it's a really wild scheme because first they're like, what should we do to get the grain? And Joseph says, give give me all your livestock. Then he says, give me all your money. And then finally, it's give me all your land. And in return for the land, he gives them seed. And he says they have to give a fifth of the land or a fifth of the, the produce back to the state. And then they can retain four fifths for their own subsistence. And effectively, what he does is like, exactly the same thing that we noticed uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus and his parables kind of talking about the way that like peasant lands get foreclosed upon by empires as they centralize and kind of, you know, suck up uh, peasant land into themselves. Um, So Joseph ends up like taking advantage of these people's situation. And what I, I think is really interesting about this story is like, as you said, like Joseph goes from literally being sold into slavery as the the younger brother to then effectively like enslaving the population of Egypt. But the Bible doesn't say that that's what he's doing necessarily. Um, and it is a kind of strange thing where Joseph seems to have like the mind of a bureaucrat. Like for him, he's just solving like administrative problems or technical problems. Like, OK, how do I sort of balance the books and also make sure people get to eat? And this is the the solution. Uh, but there's a sort of like, you know, it's it's the rationality of bureaucratized power that makes that kind of decision. It's not the sort of rationality of like uh, the young Joseph sold into slavery necessarily making that decision. And what I think is really fascinating is like, so God favors Joseph, but God doesn't tell Joseph to do this plan in particular, right? Like the Bible's kind of keeping that as like a story about Joseph's discernment or decisions not like god's advice to him and god does advise him at other times uh and it's also um the fulfillment of uh, god's promise to abraham was not only that he would have descendants but that at some point they would in fact have a big problem and be enslaved by another great nation and god would lead them out of that enslavement so it's a really fascinating kind of reversal where like they don't get enslaved because uh jacob and his family were like taken over by the egyptians they get enslaved because like they had this great deal where Jacob's family had this in with Joseph. So they left everything behind in Canaan, came to Egypt and then through like an incredibly weird economic logic during a famine, they lose everything just like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like the implicit biblical story is being like that was a bad deal, <laughs> like a bad trade. <laughs> uh, and, you know, land politics are huge in the ancient Near East, uh, not only just because of all the covenant stuff around land but because land is like all you've got so once you give up your land you're effectively powerless so it is a kind of like i don't know it's the it's the expansion of the egyptian empire and the biblical story via joseph's weird bureaucratic calculus yeah that's right 
can you imagine if Joe Biden was like, all right, uh, here's my vice president, here's my sort of cabinet, and this is the guy that interprets my dreams, and he's in charge now. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. There might be one of those in there. <laughs> Sleepy Joe. That's why it's called Sleepy, because he's always dreaming, you know? Sleepy Joe, uh, Dreamy Joe, a lot of Joes going on. Um <laughs> Well, there are tons of other things we could pull out, but I thought one other interesting theme might be around the role of uh, women in Genesis. Um, Something I found really fascinating and something the Discord has been pulling out a lot too is just different kind of moments where women have uh, all kinds of particular roles to play in the biblical story. Um, I was rereading, again, I said earlier that that Gottwald stuff, and something that he points out is that women don't have equal power to men in Genesis. It's definitely a patriarchal society, and I think the Bible almost goes out of its way to <laughs> to tell you that and remind you of that. Um, but it also identifies some pretty strong uh, female characters who assert themselves, often even against like the bad decisions of patriarchs or the kind of unjust situations that they are facing and uh, Gottwald says that that is a, a unique feature of the book of Genesis, that it's kind of finding ways of like, certainly women are exercising power in more like domestic parts of society, but they are are asserting that power nevertheless. Um, so, for example, like uh, in the, the story where Abraham is supposed to uh, have a kid so that he can have these descendants, there's all kinds of complications and at one point he ends up, uh, uh, well, his wife, Sarah, she gives Abraham her slave, Hagar, to have sex with and have a kid by. And that kid is Isaac. And then Sarah is very resentful of that whole situation. Can't imagine why. <laughs> and uh, eventually uh, Abraham gets uh, another kid via Sarah. Um Wait, did I say Isaac earlier? I meant Ishmael. Yeah, <laughs> Ishmael is the, yeah. the son of Hagar. So then he gets Isaac by Sarah. Uh, and uh, Sarah wants Abraham to drive Hagar out of his household, which he doesn't want to do. Like, you get the sense that Abraham's like, that's not quite right. And God tells him, don't worry about it, it's fine, uh, which is also kind of a weird thing. So then Hagar does go out to the wilderness with uh, Ishmael, and God nevertheless comes to her and uh, says, like, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you and stuff. There's this kind of sense in which the Bible is like, not allowing Hagar to just get like thrown to the wolves literally in that situation. Um, there's a bunch of other interesting stories. You know, Rebecca outwits her dopey husband, Isaac to get this blessing for Jacob instead of Esau. Um, Tamar, a really wild character. She uh, pulls one over on Judah, one of the sons of Jacob by pretending to be a prostitute. And uh, that story is extremely weird. Um, also has kind of a, I don't know, a great like moment of cunning and craftiness, which there's a lot of cool moments like that in the Bible. And Tamar is definitely uh, exercising some pretty clever authority there. Um, yeah. So all that to say, it's uh, it's interesting to kind of track the the role of women in Genesis. It's maybe not as like empowering as some people might, <laughs> might want it to be. Um, there's also a lot of violence against women in Genesis, too, and uh, really weird ways that that gets parsed out by god's chosen people um some incredibly bizarre responses to that and perpetration of that but uh yeah a lot of kind of interesting gender politics here in the text yeah man so much um that's maybe another episode though um well (laughs) it's been cool talking about what's been going on genesis um man there's so many weird things it's such a it is a very (laughs) it's a very interesting book uh especially when you think about how much effect it's had on like the rest of 
people's brains. I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the Nephilim is one thing for sure, but like all of these like different stories that we've been talking through, I think show up in like in our cultures in, in like lots of different ways that are, uh, I don't know, worth thinking about a bit more. Um, but you don't really get like the whole story, uh, without actually just reading Genesis. So it's, it's worth doing and, uh, and getting into it. Um, I don't know, Dean, what are we going to do next in terms of the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, well, we're going to keep on trucking. We're going to Exodus next, uh, which of course is the, the foundational big text for so much of liberation theology and many other kinds of, uh, progressive theologies. So, like we said at the beginning of the episode, now is really the time to jump on board if you want to get into the, the Bible reading plan. Um, we're also going to read all the other stuff in the Orthodox canon later on. So if you're a Protestant reading the Bible, you'll have a chance to get to know some Catholic and Orthodox books as well, all within the, the year. So now's a good time to jump in. And uh, I'm looking forward to Exodus. I feel like going through Genesis was, at, at, especially at this clip of like three chapters a day, you know, it kind of crunches all the events closer than they are in my memory. Like I often am like, oh, here's a story about Abraham and Isaac. Here's like a story about, I don't know, the creation or whatever. And they're all like very far away in my brain, but they're all incredibly close in the text. So I'm looking yeah. forward to kind of going through that with Exodus as well and uh, seeing how that goes. Getting into another uh, another novella. I guess that's what people can look forward to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Man, I am actually really psyched to read some of the apocryphal texts because I am a Protestant, so I don't know them as well. Um, but I know there's a lot of interesting stuff in them. Man, one of my favorite apocryphal moments in the Bible, at least the one that I know about, is in Daniel, where there's this whole story about Bell and the dragon, yeah, which is yeah. really wild. Another great Bible cryptid, but uh, we'll get there, <laughs> I guess. Cryptid Watch is on. Uh, we'll go back. We'll, we'll find the ones in Genesis that we've missed, and uh, we'll start finding some others as well. <laughs> I'm going to make a spreadsheet of all the cryptids in um, <laughs> a very unhealthy obsession that I'm about to uh, get into, I think. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you join us at $2 or more, you can join the Discord, get in on this Bible conversation. You don't have to. Okay, sorry, wait, let me say that right here. You don't have to discuss the Bible at all. You can still support us on Patreon. You can get in the Discord, and you can talk about other things completely and not talk about the Bible at all. So don't even worry about it if you don't want to. No one's going to make you is is my thing. Um, But you could, and that would be fine. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now. 
It's still early. At least I would have.